You are now listening to the November 16th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and Understanding Israel. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Join our conversation as we discuss practical ways to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life and help you walk your talk one step at a time. Francis Chan says, Making disciples is all about seeing people transformed by the power of God's Word. We often forget what an honor it is that God would offer relationship. It's impossible to be a disciple or a follower of someone and not end up like that person. This is Alan Heller, and I'm here with Polly. Hello. And we're talking about being a disciple maker. One of the things that Francis Chan said there that's helpful is to realize that you will become like who you hang out with. And Scripture says bad company corrupts good morals. And so the reason why we hang out with people at church is because hopefully those people are Christ-centered. They're wanting to grow in their faith. They're wanting to worship and honor God. And so that's why we hang out with those people. And then even closer than that, if you're spending uh, hours of a time in your week with somebody, you want to make sure that somebody is bringing you up a level closer to God, doing what God says. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's so true, Alan. We, we do become like the people that we emulate, and we want to be more Christ-like. And so ask yourself, who am I hanging out with right now? Right. Who are the closest people in my life? And if you don't have any close people, you should have at least one or two. And if you do have close people, do they look like Christ? <laughs> are they walking their talk? That's, That's what right. the That's whole right. message of this podcast is about, is walking our talk. So we've covered uh, being intentional, being faithful, sacrificial, having a vision for your disciple. The fifth one is teaches the word and coaches how to apply it. And in the last podcast, you might want to listen to that. We talked a lot about the skills of prayer and Bible study. Uh, we didn't talk about fasting, but sharing your faith. There are skills of how to do it. I mean, we used to say when we were with this organization called Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called Crew, we used to say, oh, I, I've not been trained or whatever. But I'm 67 years old, and I can still remember Bill Bright saying, have you made the wonderful discovery of knowing Christ personally? <laughs> You'd like to, wouldn't you? And we right. had that stuff trained into us. I will never forget that sentence. Now, that is not the way I can do it, but Bill Bright would do it, and in an elevator, see a, a person come to know the Lord and right on the spot. And I've done that maybe once or twice in my 67 or not 67, <laughs> but my 40, years 47 yeah, years of being Well, away. the thing about Bill Bright, I was never able to say, but yeah. what I do do is, 
if I am in conversation, a stranger, yeah. for any period of time, say on an airplane ride right. or or sitting someplace. Besides asking them, do they knit? What do you ask? <laughs> Well, usually after the small talk, the small talk will lead to a more serious discussion. And mm. in the course of a serious discussion... What will you ask? What's your question? My, my tendency is if I hear somebody giving me a really difficult problem that they're dealing with, I'll say, can I pray for you? Mm. And, and then I'll pray with them Anybody right no? then and there. <laughs> not you no, know, not usually people will say yes. And in that prayer time, because I am entering into the presence of God and pulling them into that circle yeah, of great. God's presence, they feel God's presence. I don't know that it's so much about the words that I'm saying, but I think that people are touched by the power of the Holy Spirit right. when we so pray. So for you, it's saying, can I pray for him? For me, it's saying, do you ever think about spiritual things? Mm -hmm. Or how did you grow up in, right. in your spiritual faith? Mm -hmm. And usually everyone's willing to share that. Bad experiences, usually. <laughs> and then we turn it around and just say, you know, that wasn't my, it was my experience young, when I was younger, but then, and I get to just share the testimony of how I came to know the Lord. So you coach people in how to do the skills of really what Jesus said to do. I mean, in sharing our faith, in being a part of a local body, and having community in a small group, and then hopefully teaching others also. So number six would be, has a lot of grace. Second Timothy 2, 1. Uh, you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Another place Paul says, I not only imparted to you the gospel, I imparted to you my very life. And to me, that's the ultimate in terms of what it means to be a discipler. You give your life to the Lord and you give your life for others. Just like Jesus said, I came to give my life a ransom for many. And a lot of those people, <laughs> frankly, don't deserve it. And I was one of them. <laughs> mm, I've had an experience with grace. As I mentioned uh, to you before, we were all together as a family one time driving down uh, the mountain back into Phoenix after being up high up in the snow. And as we drove down the mountain through a snowstorm, the snow turned to rain. And as we drove closer down into the desert, the sun came out in the distance, but it was still raining. And we saw this beautiful rainbow. And the rainbow appeared to be coming down on the road ahead of us, <laughs> ended up driving Never our car right through, right through the rainbow. And it was the most incredible experience. We were surrounded by this pink rose-colored light for just, for just a couple of seconds. But it was so magical. And um, and the really a wonderful experience of what it's like to be surrounded by God's grace. Enveloped. That enveloped, completely enveloped. Like the, our whole car outside and inside was just <laughs> glowing in this pink light. And 
And I realized later that that's the way the grace of God is. We don't have like a little spot of grace here to cover this sin and a little spot of grace over here that covers that sin when we confess it. But until we confess it, that sin isn't <laughs> isn't mm. covered by God's grace. We're immersed in God's grace. We are surrounded by it completely. So be strong in grace. Number seven, pray. A discipler prays. Luke six twelve the twelve twelve apostles the twelve <laughs> apostles you can say one it. of those days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray so there's the example of the leader praying going out to the mountain and pray he spent the night praying to God when the morning came he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them who he also designated as apostles. So, I mean, this was a very important decision that Jesus was going to make. And so he prayed and he fasted. And those are good examples for us. And we need to be a good example of that to those we're discipling. And then one who serves, sitting down, Jesus called the 12. And this is at the Last Supper. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. And, of course, he washed the disciples' feet. So what are the ways you can wash your disciples' feet? Uh, what is a need that they have? Um, just asking them, when you have an appointment with them and you spend time with them and you ask them some questions about their family or problems they're having, the next time you get together, it should be an automatic thing. Hey, how's your mom? I, you know, you told me she was in the hospital. That kind of care really affects and infects your disciple. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, a form of humbling myself and serving the other Well, caring person. more about their needs than my needs. So, you know, that whole thing about I come into the room and I either say, here I am, God's gift to you, I'm going to teach you stuff, or I say, there you are, how may I help you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that somebody is overwhelmed by something. Maybe they've just prepared a big meal and their kitchen is just a big mess and you've partaken of that meal. To say, let me do the, these dishes for you. Can How can I help you clean, clean this up? It's not, we don't wash one another's feet in our society. We, we all wear shoes and socks pretty mm-hmm. much. It's just, uh, and And indoor plumbing is readily available to just go and wash your own feet. So we don't have servants do that for us, but we can do tasks for one another that would otherwise be relegated to someone a little lower down the in the chain. You know, like, let me take out that garbage for you. Let me wipe off these countertops for you. I'll be happy to help clean out your refrigerator. So, and that's what John 13, 4 and following says. So Jesus, he got up from the meal, the Last Supper, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, who were probably smelly and caked with mud, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. There are times to go out of my way to be somewhere or do something for someone I am working with. Uh, I've gone to hospitals. I've, uh, in the middle of a situation where I had an appointment, but this person in front of me had a need, and I said, oh, I'm going right that way. I can go do that. And they went, oh, okay, great. 
Um, so you catch people off guard. Um, I have gone to softball games. I have gone to football games of kids that are five years old that have no idea how to play football <laughs> because not for the kid. I wanted to tell the dad, I care about you. I care about who you love um, as much as you do. Then nine, nine, number nine is be willing to get close and let the disciples see your strengths as well as your weaknesses. So be an observer of them, but also let them be an observer for you. A mentor of mine, Howard Hendricks, used to say that his students felt it was most helpful to see what he was, not what he became. Mm -hmm. So many times he was talking about something in the present, and then he'd give a story about in the past when he blew it or something, and uh, his students in seminary would just go, my gosh, Prof, we didn't know that happened to you. We thought you were perfect. So I remember driving some guys to men's group and passing an exit to where we were going on a weekend together, and we were finding out about ourselves and each other. They were finding out that I got very absorbed in conversation and missed the exit. <laughs> I've and, noticed, and had I've to noticed for, that happens. And had to uh, forgive me <laughs> for that, and I had to try and not react defensively to them. So... Um, Number 10 is a discerner. What are the person's felt needs and what's the difference between felt need and real need? Many times I'll start with what the person is saying. Even though I disagree that this isn't the strongest need that they have, I'll say, okay, let's talk about your brother and the fact that you're in conflict and all that sort of thing. When really I know they're just, they're not really um, in other areas doing what they need to do to be the person they need to be to that brother. We need to be a discerner. I may see someone's marriage who's hurting and I'll start with communication but then go to something else. Uh, I spend time helping them with, sometimes I'll help somebody spend time with golf and give that, that'll be an opportunity to get into their marriage. In other words, it's something they like to do, they're sort of off guard and then I might say, so how's your wife? <laughs> of course, he then slices the ball and tells me, can we talk about golf and not my wife? <laughs> um, but eventually we get into it. So working with a guy who's struggling with pornography, I sometimes you know, don't comment it right on it right away, but I start to build trust and then talk about what's this issue that is controlling his life and about to ruin his marriage. Yeah, you do have to see what's going on beneath the surface and ask questions about those things. And I, I think that that's tricky. I think that that's uh, taking a risk because, especially for somebody like me, because I, I tend to be a people pleaser and I don't want somebody to get upset with me. You, on the other hand, tend to charge right in and ask those hard questions. But I, I might see that somebody is uncomfortable with something that I've said, but, uh, but not want to remark on it. But I will hear a little prompting inside my head or- The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is saying, 
you need to ask about this. You need to ask them about this other thing that you're sensing, which is not what they're talking about. But you ask that hard question, and that's when it all opens up. So we need to be a discerner. And then we need to be, 11, a learner. Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, in favor with God, and in favor with man, Luke 2:52. We need to grow intellectually, physically, emotionally, socially, grow in our relationship with others. And that's your job as a discipler, is to help this person grow in those areas. Well, I think it's important to not neglect those other areas because sometimes people get really out of balance and they tend to uh, to move easily toward the things that come easily to them and neglect the areas that are are difficult that re- require more discipline or saying no to things that they want to do so when when you are discipling them, that you're not just concerned about whether or not they've done their Bible study, whether or not they've the memorized their verse, verses. Yeah, because it's You're important. a whole person. Yeah, you are a whole person. And maybe you're watching them. Oh, you, you met with them, but you haven't seen them for a while. And the next time you get together, you realize they've gained four or five pounds. And then <laughs> you get together with them again, and they've gained four or five more. And it's like... What's happening with your eating habits? Are you eating any fresh <laughs> fruits and vegetables? Are you... Uh, right. The things that are seen are easy. It's a little harder when there are conflicts and inner turmoil. And, you know, they're just in the news was uh, a national pastor who just committed suicide. And uh, his whole ministry was about that. And somewhere, somebody, maybe there's nothing anybody could have done about it. But being willing to ask the hard questions is important, especially when it's stuff that you can't see. The weight, the eating, sleeping, you know, those things, but they're, they're still important. Uh, how did Jesus teach? We talked about this, that he'd model it and then he'd do it with mm-hmm. them. Then he would let them do it and give them input, and then he'd let them do it themselves. Twelve, the last one is be a modeler. We must walk our talk. Uh, we not, must try and do what we're telling them to do. Don't do this, do as I say, not as I do. And I've noticed as leaders get more removed from people, they end up doing things that they wouldn't do and they wouldn't allow their people under them to do. But I think we could take a, a cue from Coach John Wooden, who is a great UCLA coach, probably one of the best coaches of all time, When he asked his players to stay, he would ask them to stay in the hotel when they were in town, he would do it too. He would stay with them. He would model what it means to walk your talk. And he could have stayed at his house, but he stayed with his players just like they did. Disciplers, they're not perfect people, but they're progressing people. And are you ready to be one? (laughs) This is Alan Heller and Polly, and if you want more information, you can email me at alan, A-L-A-N, at walkandtalk, W-A-L-K-A-N-D-T-A-L-K dot org, and we'd love to talk to you and answer any questions you have. If you have never made a decision to ask Christ into your life, and you don't 
know what it's like to experience the abundant life that he promised, I would encourage you right now to just ask him, Lord, come into my life. I ask you to forgive all the sins, the things that have separated me from you. And I ask you to come in right now. Make me the kind of person you want to be, you want me to be, so that I can love the way you love, and I can walk the way you walk, and I can talk the way you talk. We'll see you next time. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Enemy Within, based on Galatians 5, 16-26. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. And as we think about that, fascinating when you think about some, like new atheists, a new atheist like Richard Dawkins, who claims that Christianity is much like a straitjacket, but even worse than that, he would say that Christianity is actually even more than that. It is tantamount to child abuse. Uh, now, you might say, why would he say something like that? Well, the reason is he would say that many of the world's religions and much of the problems that we have in the world can be traced back to religion. Now, if we're honest, our hearts tell us the same kind of thing when we are tempted to sin. We begin to believe that in some way, holiness is at enmity with our happiness, either internally or our happiness with others. And so we start to actually believe those kinds of lies in our soul. Uh, Dawkins writes it this way. He says, there's no doubt that throughout history, religion, faith has been a major motivator for war and for destruction. So religion causes problems and destructions and wars. Now, there's no doubt that many wars, like the Crusades, have erupted and death tolls escalated in the name of religion of every brand, including atheism, which acts like a religion. But Christians could fight back in this case, and we could say, well, you know what? What about Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, and others who were influenced by atheistic worldviews? I mean, haven't they been just as corrupt and created just as many wars and just as much damage. That's one way to argue that. But I wonder if, as I've been thinking about this this week, if there is a sense in which the Apostle Paul would agree, at least on this point with Richard Dawkins, that mere religion and its practices actually do lead to bondage and death. In fact, Galatians seems to argue in a very similar vein. You'll remember that Paul grew up as a Hebrew of Hebrews with the Jewish version of an Ivy League education under Gamaliel. And when we are first introduced to him in Acts, we see him seeking to persecute other Christians out of a zeal for religion. So here is a very religious man and his religion has led him to the persecution of others who do not believe in his faith. See, his religion led him to seek the death of others. But Galatians, I would argue, is about something much more than mere religion that's centered on the keeping of law and statutes. In fact, Paul understood that every human inherited a sin nature from Adam, along with its own set of desires, which he calls the flesh here in this book. Paul understands Christianity and the new covenant that has been instituted by the blood of Jesus to be centered on a new birth and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is not mere religion, it is a new creation. And so something on the inside has changed in the people of God according to Paul. In Galatians 4.6 he says it this way, And because you are sons, sons and daughters, God has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts crying out, Abba, Father. That is the nature of what has happened to everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the good news of the gospel is that we have new hearts that have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, creating in us a new nature. See, something on the inside has drastically and radically changed. So the new birth turns the war that we have been experiencing outwardly 
inward and our very hearts. That is where we are putting off the old man and putting on the new man as the Holy Spirit leads us to fight these desires of the flesh. And the Holy Spirit leads us to Christ's likeness. Now the Bible says that Satan, the world, other people, our own selves, or any mixture of these above can excite us to sin. So catch this. None of us are or will be free of temptation until Jesus returns. So when we think about temptation, this is something that all of us need to be thinking about acutely. And this morning we will see that Christians battle the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, the first thing that we see here this morning is this. Freedom is a battle between the flesh and the spirit. We see that in verses 16 to 18. Now, you'll remember in Galatians 5.13 that Paul told us that Christians are called to freedom, but he adds this one important clarification that we're going to be thinking about this morning. And that's this. He says, only do not use your, your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And so this morning, I believe that what Paul is doing and the verses that we're looking at is he's kind of double-clicking on not using your freedom for an opportunity of the flesh to explode it out and say, this is what I mean by that. This is what it means not to let your freedom be used in ways that I don't intend. So that's what we find in verses 16 to 18. Now here's what he says about the war that is within. Look there with me. Galatians 5, 16 to 18 again. Here's what he says. He says this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, he says you are no longer under the law. So notice that Paul clarifies that in every human, there are these two drivers that are driving you towards the decisions that you make. Two powers or forces at play. One is the the spirit and the other is the flesh. And they are opposed to one another. Those are influences that that are driving your thoughts and your desires and your longings. So the flesh is kind of a power that is at work within you, that's influencing you. But it's also the flesh has a direction that he's driving you towards. And really you'll notice that direction is anything but faith in Christ and confidence in Christ. And so that's a force that it's at work in all of us. And the Holy Spirit seals every Christian and drives that person to live for Christ's likeness. That's the problem with the law that Paul exposes. The law that he's been talking about throughout Galatians. He says it has no ability to transform the heart and desires of fallen humans enslaved to sin. Just think about that. If you are struggling with breaking the law and I show you the law, and you still want to break the law, and are going to break the law, then that law has not really helped you, has it? See, the the Bible says that we are so broken in such a way that our wills actually desire to break the law. And we can't just tell somebody, hey, here's how to act right. Here's the user's manual, and now you'll work right. No, it says that we're more broken than that. We actually need an inward work of the Lord to come in and change us. All the law does is expose the glory of God and how far humanity has fallen. All it's done is diagnose the problem. It is not prescribed what it is that we need to be changed. So just as Jeremiah asked in Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The answer is no. I've never seen a leopard decide that he was going to look something other than a leopard. But if so, he says, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. The point is, you can't change your heart to do that. 
And the reality is that leopards can't change their spots and Ethiopians can't change their skin color. And those accustomed to evil can't do good. And those of the flesh can't walk by the Spirit. So something new has to happen for man to live for something other than these desires of the flesh that Paul speaks of. The Spirit leads us to Christ's likeness, which is opposed to those desires of the flesh. Now, notice that these two powers coexist in the believer. The Spirit and the flesh. I don't know what you experienced or how you've experienced um, the Christian life. I'm not sure quite what you expected when you became a Christian. I don't know about you, but I thought maybe there would be some kind of protective orb that would come around me. And that once I became a Christian, that like life would get easy then because I was like doing what God wanted. And that I no longer would have struggle with sinful desires. Uh, that that would just get kind of better, at least like majorly better. And that I wouldn't have to fight sin. Maybe some of you had that kind of expectation as a young Christian. Some Christians imagine that the Christian life is one where you don't experience the desires of the flesh. And if you do, you think that this thing must be broken. Maybe as you're experiencing that today, you're not, you're thinking to yourself, maybe there are a couple things going on. A, I, I must not be a Christian. Or B, you haven't reached the right enlightened level of your Christian walk. That there's some place where you can get where you no longer are within the reach and the grasp of the desires of the flesh. But catch this, the great battle that each of us faces each morning we wake up is internal. Even our thoughts and our desires are broken. We will struggle with the desires of the flesh until the day that we meet Jesus face to face. And I think that's what the phrase in verse 17 means. Notice this phrase that he uses in verse 17. He says, speaking of the flesh and the spirit, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Now, when some read that verse, some commentators say, well, the things that you want to do are the things of the spirit because you're a Christian now. It will never occur till Christ comes back. See, this is highlighting that internal fight, that struggle that exists in every Christian. It is a basic part of what it means to be a Christian to experience this battle and this war. Ultimate perfection and safety... It only comes when Jesus returns to deal ultimately with sin and death and the devil. That desire, that fight, it never goes away. Spiritual life is experienced in the battle against the desires of flesh that lead to sin. And the real question until that day is one of posture. What posture are you taking towards sin and sinful desire? Are you taking God's side against sin and against temptation? Or are you taking sin's side against God? That's really the main question. Are you sensing the fight or not? Are you battling against sin and temptation? Only the Holy Spirit leads you to, sin, to fight against sin and leads you towards God. And when it comes to temptation, I think it's important to know a little bit about what's going on in our hearts. And I, the Bible teaches that humanity has a couple of big problems. Our thoughts and our wants are disordered. The Bible says that our, our thoughts and our wants are disordered. It's just important to know the nature of the problem that we struggle with. See, the first that we see is, is that we, we don't think right after the fall. After Adam, we don't think right. Our minds don't work right. So Romans one twenty one talks about this. There, Paul says that we became futile in our thinking, in our sin. Futile. Our, our thoughts are futile. They're not thinking clearly. They're not thinking wisely. They're thinking foolishly. They don't think clearly about God. They don't think about others in the way that God created us to think about others. We are broken. So we try to rationalize living in God's world without God. Of course, this is tied to that second effect of the fall that is so important for us to understand, and that's that we don't desire the right things. If we don't think rightly, we won't want rightly. And so we don't want what we ought to. 
That's exactly what we are told by Paul in this text. We don't have desires that reflect a God consciousness left to ourselves. A residue or stain of original, that inherited sin, remains within us in these effects. This residue or stain, they're experienced primarily in our thinking, which is futile, and even our very wills, tending in the direction of a love of self rather than a love of God. That's where we've been bent towards. I love the sin. I enjoyed to break God's law. It made me happy in a way. And that was the point at which he recognized how broken the human heart is apart from God after the fall. See, temptation is still at work even in the heart that has been converted towards Christ and that has the power of the Holy Spirit that is transforming us. Transforming us, by the way, from one degree of glory to the next, not ten degrees like we would like. And as it's doing that, we realize that we are struggling with desires, inordinate desires. And temptation is attractive because our desires are warped, left to ourselves without the help of God. See, we need more than a good conscience to fight sin. Every human has a conscience, but we need more than a conscience, a good conscience to fight sin. We actually need the Holy Spirit, God himself, to help us if we are to fight sin and temptation. We need a new heart and the internal driver, that person of the Holy Spirit, to empower us. So if you were here this morning and you were thinking to yourself, I have a sin or a temptation that is too strong for me, then you are in a good place. You are absolutely right. The only way to fight sin and temptation is through the power of the Holy Spirit. You need God himself. See, we need three things to fight the desires of the flesh. First, we need the Holy Spirit. So if you are not a a Christian, maybe it's that you don't even sense that you have broken God's law or are guilty before him and don't sense temptation, if you don't sense those things, just know this, it is a grace of God to sense that we have sinned against a holy and righteous God because the day of judgment's coming. And if that's you today, I pray that you would have the Holy Spirit so that grace would actually create fear in your heart until those fears are relieved in Christ alone. But for us who are believers, we know that we need the Holy Spirit. God's law will seem infuriating. More rules will make us angry and cause us to be angry towards God and others left to ourselves. Now that might look like apathy or rage when you are angry at God and others because you can't keep the rules. Maybe you'll sound like Richard Dawkins. But either way, you know that all the law does is show you that you are under the law. That you should desire things that you don't desire. That's why Paul says in verse 18, if you'll notice, if you are led by the Spirit, he says, you are not under the law. You're not under the law anymore if you're led by the Spirit. All the law does for those led by the flesh, is revealed to them that they are enslaved in their very hearts. The things they long for, they never get. And they are led more and more to pipe dreams that never pan out. Only the Holy Spirit of God can lead us out of bondage to sin into the freedom of Jesus Christ. Spiritual freedom is a gift only given to those who are utterly dependent on God. Don't miss that. Spiritual freedom is a gift that is only given to those who are utterly dependent on God. If you want to be free, you need to be bound to God. Second, we need not only the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the Bible to help us think straight. See, our wants, they need to be shaped by the the truth of who God is. That's what should shape what we long for, what we dream about, what we desire. And if we want to know how to walk according to the Spirit, we need to know what the Spirit says. And the voice of the Holy Spirit is found in the pages of Scripture which were written by men carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I believe that God can give people impressions. 
God leads his people, gives them senses of things, but we are fallen and even our sense of God can be misinterpreted and we can miss him. Even the prophets needed to compare their prophecies with the scriptures and other prophets. And I believe that God in this is telling us that we need to to make sure that we are constantly tethered to the word of God and seeking his face in his word and listening to his voice and his voice alone. Scriptures help us know the truth so that we can walk in it. But there's a third thing that we need, and that's prayer. We need to pray for ourselves and our church and for our church to pray for us because we can't change our hearts. That's a work that we need God to do. If we're struggling with sins, it began with a temptation, and that temptation began in a heart that needs to be transformed by God. We need to pray for ourselves and for others and have others pray for us. So let me ask you this this morning. As you think through your struggles with sin and temptation, are we praying like a people who are desperate to be changed? Is our prayer life marked by desperation to see God change us and change others? In the heart, not just their actions, Not just the sins that we see, but the hearts that we don't see. Transformed more into the image of Christ. So that our hearts beat with Christ's heart. I mean, how much different a people would we be if our heart were incrementally, day by day, degree by degree, being changed into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ? Are we praying like a people desperate or have we given up on God? Believing that He really can't bring the kind of freedom from sin and temptation that we desire and that we long for. Or have we started to subtly believe That we are tired of trying because we think that it's our trying that actually delivers us and leads us into freedom from sin and temptation. When we sin, do we ask not only for forgiveness of our sins, but for new hearts that are led by the Spirit and not by the flesh? Second, notice in verses 19 to 25 that mortification and vivification are what we are called to. This is a double-edged sword against temptation. Mortification and vivification. Now as you look in verses 19 to 25, you'll notice that Paul lists out works of the flesh... And fruits of the Spirit. And then in verses 19 to 20, he lists out those works of the flesh. So look what he says uh, in verses 19 to 20. Here's what he says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you'll remember what he said in verse 25 about those who are fighting the passions and the desires. In verse 24 that we read earlier, he said, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now we're going to come back to that, but that speaks of a a putting to death the works of the flesh. But in verse 24, you'll notice The aorist used for have crucified the flesh communicates the flesh was put to death in the past historically at the cross. But it also signals a posture change in the Christian. In other words, this isn't just something that has been done. That's true here. But we are also called in this text to fight these things that we're about to talk about in the flesh to battle against them. So Christians stand against the flesh, continuing to put to death the flesh until Christ returns. That's what Colossians 3.5 says. There Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. And I think these are the things that he's saying that we need to put to death if we are led by the Spirit. So notice there is a, a list of vices that we just read, followed by a list of what seem to be fruits of the Spirit or what might be called virtues by some. Now, a list of virtues and vices were common in the first century, and Paul seems to think that they should have been 
evident to Christians and non-Christians alike. These things that he lists. He says, these works of the flesh are evident. People can see them. I don't even really need to say it, but I will. See, God created the love between a man and a woman, and he actually stamped it as very good in the context of marriage between one woman and one man for life. It's a beautiful gift in the context of marriage, but it's sin to pursue it outside of the context that God created it for. So sexual immorality comes from the same word for pornography. These three different words, we're looking at them really quickly. It comes from the same word pornography, which speaks specifically of sexual relationships outside of the pattern which God has created. Uh, Impurity can mean the same kind of thing. Sexually, it also is broader in the sense of just being impure generally. And then sensuality, it might seem like a word that is sort of more vague, but it actually speaks of more of a, a rampant kind of headlong pursuit of sexuality without any kind of hindrances. Well, don't miss this. Here's something I think that's important to remember when we think about sex according to the Bible. God cares about your sex life. He cares about you. He cares about every area, aspect of your life. You know, in the Greek and Roman cultures, sexual sin wasn't especially bad as long as you didn't plunge yourself into it. But when it comes to temptation and God, it's important to remember that sin begins with a heart posture towards God and others. If we begin with a a sexual appetite, some kind of desire that we have that is likely broken, that is likely affected by the fall, and then we try to work from that appetite back up to God and tell God what he ought to do, and begin to create a God that looks different from the God of the Bible who is sovereign over us in every aspect, then we have an idol. We have a different God than the God who created us. We have a created God. See, we don't have time to tarry here for long. But I believe it's important just to take note of pornography and the devastating effects that it has on our culture. Uh, There was just a Barna study in 2016 that found that There's something that is shifting in the way that the generation after the baby boomers is viewing life and ethics and sexuality. Uh, In fact, they just did a, a study in 2016 where they found that teens and young adults actually believe that not recycling is more immoral than having, than viewing porn. In other words, like recycling and viewing porn, like recycling, like that's really the moral thing that we need to be looking out for. And only a third of them think that viewing pornography is actually sin. The Apostle Paul would say that pornography is actually enslaving a generation of people that we love. It's searing their consciences. It's warping their sense of the image of God. It's feeding the flesh, not the spirit. And it's ruining lives. See, porn never created a gentleman. Ladies, the men that you want, they are not going to be created by porn. Gentlemen are only created by the Holy Spirit because gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And if they are not led by the Holy Spirit, then you're not going to find a man who is gentle and kind and gracious and protective and loving of you. You'll find a man that has been feeding the flesh and that is not safe for you. And men, it's the same way with you. Like you need to fight this like you're fighting for your life and your soul because those who practice such things don't inherit the kingdom of God. If you're struggling with that this morning, I just want you to know that you are in a safe place. This is a place where we want our brothers and sisters And those who are even outside of the covenant who are looking for life and help to come. And so if you're struggling with that, let us bring it into the light with you. Find another brother to talk to for accountability or another sister if you're a woman who's struggling with these things. Uh, You can uh, turn in your smartphone for a dumb phone. That might be the smartest thing you've ever done. You can get covenant eyes for your computer. Uh, Do it all. Like, just go napalm on this stuff. You just need to fight it. It is your soul that is at stake. We need to save the generation that is to come. And that can only be through the leading of the Holy Spirit. But there's a second thing that we find that that Paul speaks up here. He says, 
Mortify mere religion. Notice he speaks of idolatry and sorcery. Now, idolatry is worshiping something other than God, and sorcery is tampering with evil powers. So, all idolatry is demonic. The flesh draws, seeks to drag our worship away from God to almost anything else. But I think the point is dead on anyway. See, that word for desire that he speaks of, the desires of the flesh that he begins with in verse 16, really is an inordinate kind of desire. And here's why I think that might be important. It's to say that desires for good things aren't bad. They're good. It's good to have good desires. God created us with those things. God wants us to take joy in him, to enjoy him and the things that he made. He wants you to be a people of joy. See, they only become evil, these good things and these good desires, when one overly desires some good thing to the degree that it controls them and becomes like a god to them. So some good thing in your life, really good, gets super confusing when that thing becomes a god and controls you. See, it speaks of something that you can't be happy without. You've probably heard it said that good gifts make bad gods. They make horrible gods. And our hearts can turn husbands, wives, children, friends, Houses, cars, hobbies, jobs, sexual appetites, and even ministries into gods. Now, what could you this morning not be happy living without if all you had was Jesus Christ? What controls you? Is the flesh tempting you to deify your good desires this morning? Third, notice he gives a category of mortifying community killers. Do you see that? Mortify community killers. They are quarrels, a contentious temper. Someone who is just given to fighting. Envy. Somebody who is jealous of or wants something that someone else has. Fits of rage. Where you just explode at people. Selfish ambition. Wanting what's best for you without regard for others. Dissensions. Where you are fighting with others. Party intrigues. Creating factions around opinions or different preferences. And jealousies. Maybe not even not just wanting somebody to have what you want, but wanting them not to have it. See, the gospel creates a humility in the people of God that brings about the fruit of unity and peace, not these things. And the gospel is self-sacrificial and it's working. Just as Christ laid down his life for us, we lay down our lives for one another. But notice here that the flesh is self-centered and leads to fights. So much of this centers on the the heart posture and attitude. Did you notice that? There's a, a temptation to form cliques and factions around preferences. And towards wanting what others have and not wanting others to have what they have received. And don't miss this. Where Jesus reigns in the individual hearts of God's people, peace will break out more and more. But it will always be a fight that begins with fighting temptation in our own hearts to jockey for Christ's throne. But catch this. If someone has sinned against you, let me just encourage you, go to that person and be reconciled like Jesus says in Matthew 18. Right? If we want the peace that God promises... He also says that we need to fight for it. And part of that fight for the community is going to brothers or sisters that have offended us. You know, stewing in your anger, it's not going to produce the righteousness of God and it can lead to division in the body. And Jesus wants better for his people. Now, maybe Facebook or Pinterest have tweaked your heart and tempted you to hate someone for living the life that you want. And maybe you need to take break from social media just to protect your heart from not loving others. But we need to be on guard, watching what it is that is actually feeding our hearts and drawing us away from God. But fourth, we need to mortify drunkenness and orgies. Now, this may be one thing, but I think these two things might be the same thing, the idea of getting drunk and indulging in sin. See, Jesus came to give his flesh and blood, reminding us of a greater feast and party that is to come. Accompanied by joys this world can't compete with. 
So that desire to get drunk and to indulge in sin, the thought that there's some kind of joy that is in that, that can by any means compete with the kingdom that is to come that we have been promised is a lie and a fiction from hell. I think the reason that we find in this text, in verse 24, that we are to persecute and to kill and put to death the desires of the flesh is because he wants us to know in verse 22 that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, many of these Christians would have struggled with major FOMO. You know what I'm talking about? Like fear of missing out? Like fear of missing out on the party, fear of missing out on the family get-togethers, fear of missing out on all of the acceptance and all of the joy. That there's some kind of joy that's being offered to the world that they don't get to be a part of. Their fear of missing out on feeding the appetites of this life and the community of this world. But Paul turns it on its head here, I believe. You need to reset your FOMO from tomorrow's party to the eternal kingdom of God and the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's the thing you need to be scared of missing out on. There is no joy like that joy. And you are day by day sacrificing it for petty, insignificant, momentary things when God has something eternal and vast and meaningful that is offered to you. See, that's the party that you want to miss out on. Catch this. It's not only putting to death sin, it's living unto God. It's vivifying, bearing fruit of the Spirit. Notice what he says in verses 22 to 26. He says this. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now you'll notice Paul here points to the fruitful results of the one who is in Christ. There's no law against these. You're free to walk about the cabin in these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. All of this begins with that love of God that visits and reshapes the hearts and lives of his people. See, that whole list begins with the love of God being shed abroad on the hearts of those who are in Christ. And that's when we experience the joy that is a gift of the Spirit, but also a command of the Lord. It's when we experience that peace, that that holistic being right with God and others. Where we experience Patience, which is that ability to endure hard things and remain faithful. It is the way in which we begin to experience the kindness, the kindness of the Lord and the kindness towards others and the goodness of God that blesses us, the blessings of the new covenant and the faithfulness, the faithfulness that we show to sticking with God and others and His people and the gentleness that we show towards others and the self-control. All of these things are actually coming and flowing from the love of God that has been shown to us. And it has swept us up in a sense that we begin to look like God. God is the God who loves. God is the God of infinite joy. God is the God, a God who is of peace. There is no division in God. He is perfectly at peace at all times. And He's bringing about peace to His people. And we become missionaries and ambassadors of the peace of God. He is the one who has been patient with us in our sin. In those sins that we are fighting even today. He is the one who is patiently working with us, disciplining us as children that He loves to give us life, not death. He is the God who is good to us. Every good gift comes to us from Him. There is no good but from God. He is faithful. He has to remind His people again and again who are faithless before Him that He is faithful and He will never give up on His covenants. He is the God who is gentle with us. He's not harsh, casting us off as we deserve. He is gentle. He is self-controlled. He doesn't lose his temper. 
He does not act in rage. He is always acting with infinite wisdom and purpose in the decisions that he has. And we begin to look like God. And God says, there is no law against looking like me. In other words, we are called to hear, look like our God. And he says, verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus. Notice how it's, it's butted up right next to these fruits of the Spirit. Not the works of the flesh, but the fruits of the Spirit. He butts it up to this verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, this whole work of us looking like God and us having these fruits of the Spirit that are springing up into life, not death, it is not because of you ultimately. It's because of what Christ has done at the cross. Do you notice that? It's those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. That's an heiress that points to the past, a past event that happened. And he says, this is something that happened at the cross. That's the reason that you are alive today. So if we're looking for the confidence that we have to walk in these things, it is not pull up yourself by your bootstraps and you can do better today. It is don't forget what Christ did at the cross. He defeated the powers of sin, death, and the devil so that you can walk in life. There's hope. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling elsewhere in Scripture, but here Paul grounds our victory over the flesh at the work of Christ on the cross. And it's not just that a believer can have victory over temptation and sin. We've already won in Christ at the cross where he disarmed temptation and sin. Now, I want to close with two quick things. First, we need to be reminded as we think about killing sin and temptation that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. After reminding us that we belong to Christ, I love what Tim Keller says in his commentary here. He says, all that is his, being Christ, is ours. Our approval and welcome from the Father rests not on our character or actions, but on His. And we are free to acknowledge where we have given up ground to the the flesh in our lives. We're free to confess where we have not sought to keep in step with the Spirit. We are free to realize that we have confused our gifts or our natural character with the fruit of the Spirit and not given Him the credit that He is due. See, if we really believe what the Bible says about Jesus, we can be vulnerable and transparent about sin and avoid, avoid two extremes. On one side, saying, well, we're, we're all sinners, and who am I to judge? We want to avoid that. Yeah, we are sinners, and it's only by grace that we are saved. But God does not want to leave us in that sin. He wants to transform us from one degree of glory into the next, into His Son. And, and we don't want to come into the other equally dangerous extreme where You know, we're Christians and Christians don't do that stuff. And and if you do, you have to hide it really good because then people will know that you're a sinner and we can't hang out with you anymore. See, neither of those postures leads to transformation and change. And the Bible is all about the fact that we need to be transformed into the image of Christ day by day. We need to be a place where people feel that they can humbly seek Christ's likeness with the firm conviction that our hope is located in our union with Christ not ourselves. And second, those in Christ need to keep in step with the Spirit. Pursuing holiness and fighting temptation to sin against God will not happen if you just let go and let God. It's not a default setting that you're going to just like sort of ease into holiness. It's a battle. As Kevin DeYoung says, it requires Spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. And as we find areas of our lives that are out of step, we need to seek Christ and His help by the power of the Holy Spirit to change. So to use the language of idolatry, we need to chase down the idols of our lives and hearts and replace them with the living Christ, placing our confidence fully in Him. Is that what you're doing? Is that what we're doing? 
pray and ask God that he would help us.
are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Understanding Israel. Hello everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for our program series, Understanding Israel. Last week, we looked at how the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, began the Jewish High Holy Days in autumn, and began the preparation for the Day of Atonement. So today, we will be studying this very important event. The Day of Atonement is known in Hebrew as Yom Kippur. Yom, meaning day, and Kippur comes from the root word meaning to atone. On this day, the high priest made an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people and brought reconciliation between the people and God for the new year. God has a lot to say about this particular day. First, in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 26 through 28, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement, It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. Now let's back up to Leviticus chapter 16, where God speaks to Moses about the law of atonement and the permanent statute of this solemn and important day. In verses 2 through 10, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, He shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. 
Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell, and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord, to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. God explains to Moses how the bull is to be slaughtered for the sins of the priest and his household, and how the goat is to be slaughtered for the sins of the people, as well as how the blood of both is to be sprinkled on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, along with a fire pan and the cloud of incense. God continues in verses 16 through 18. He, the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. Then in verses 20 through 22, God says, When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness." The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. God continues describing how the high priest is to cleanse himself after all this is done, as well as how the man who takes the goat out to the wilderness cleanses himself. And God finishes up in verse 34, saying, Now you shall have this as a permanent statute, to make atonement for the sons of Israel, for all their sins, once every year. Now that we have the history of the Day of Atonement, what does this mean for us Christians? As the Day of Atonement represented Israel's salvation as a nation, 2,000 years ago the sacrificial blood atonement of Jesus made forgiveness and salvation possible for the world. At that time, the thick curtain in the second temple that kept men from seeing the glory of God in the most holy place was torn from top to bottom. Now there is no barrier between God and those who believe in Jesus. We can now enter into that most holy place inside of us where God waits. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. This is another day that points to the future events on God's calendar. As the Feast of Trumpets is looking to a future event of the blowing of God's trumpet, where the church, the Bride of Christ, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, 
the Day of Atonement looks to after the days of tribulation. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the end times, and in verses 29 through 31, he says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of all the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. His elect are the saved Jews that have made it through the tribulation, and they are finally and permanently reconciled to God. In closing, the Day of Atonement was and still is the most solemn holy day of all the feasts. For the Jews, it is a day of fasting and repentant prayer to God. But for Christians, Jesus made the once-for-all sacrifice blood atonement on the cross and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Take time today to thank Jesus for his work on the cross, that we may come to him any time to ask for forgiveness of our sins to give thanks to Him, and to praise Him for who He is, our Lord and Savior, our Redeemer. Until next time, God bless you all, and goodbye. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.